Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shambaugh, welcoming you to the February 28th, 2023 edition of Ask a Leader. For the full hour is a special pairing of two guests who've been on here before, but at different times and occasions. Pauline Mary recently and Adam Smyre several years ago. This might recall some very famous intergenerational pairings our listeners have seen and heard. This conversation is not staged. It's a moment that they're sharing with us in the moment they are in now. Pauline Mary was on recently with her new autobiography, Growing Up in the Ville in St. Louis, Missouri, five stories about a little black girl growing up in the 1940s and 50s in the very segregated St. Louis, Missouri. She contemplates pending a continuation of this story, which I'm really looking forward to. Pauline taught at Jordan High School in Los Angeles, then moved into several roles in the California Community College system as a teacher, then counseling and finally administration at Los Angeles Community College District, Irvine Valley College, West Los Angeles College. She retired as the provost of the Pacific Coast campus of Long Beach City College. Pauline's community service includes women for Orange County, lecturing at the Osher Lifelong Institute class on African-American women's history at Cal State Fullerton. As an adult learner of the cello, she performs in the Southern California Philharmonic and serves on their board of directors. She served the larger community as a member of the OCTA Measure M Oversight Committee, and she's currently serving on the Orange County Grand Jury. My other guest is Adam Smyer, a writer and attorney. His most recent book entitled, You Can Keep That to Yourself, a comprehensive list of what not to say to Black people for well-intentioned people of power. It's a pithy and essential guide that I continue to share quite a bit. Adam practiced law at a top 10 firm and various public entities, all while building quite a writing career for the last 14 years. He's contributed to the Johannesburg Review of Books. His debut novel, Knucklehead, was the sole title shortlisted for the 2018 Ernest J. Gaines Award for Literary Excellence. Adam comes to us today from Oakland and Polly in Garden Grove. We're recording this February 25th. Welcome back to Ask a Leader, Pauline Mary and Adam Spire. Hello. Hello there. It's very nice to be in conversation with you today, Polly. Yes, I'm looking forward to what happens. <laughs> you know, if nothing else, we share a uh, a love of long titles. So we've got that going for us. Okay. It is a long title, isn't it? Growing up in the Ville, and it goes on and on and on. <laughs> well, as I mentioned in the opening, some interesting dialogues are recirculating. They're provocative, intergenerational, and bring points that are every bit as relevant right now as they were when they were produced. One of them I'm thinking of is on Soul, 1971, between Nikki Giovanni and James Baldwin. These are the topics that they covered are the jumping off point wherein I would respectfully request you two, 
Polly and Adam to reflect upon. I could list a few, or perhaps you want to just seize on what you noticed, what grabbed you in reviewing that kind of a dialogue, that particular dialogue. Okay. So they talk about policing, economic disparities, education, religion, love, and they even mention virtue signaling in those days without calling it that, but it was actually what Nikki Giovanni is talking about. So I don't know of those topics, what they brought up, it, they could have easily had been talking today about what they had to say. That was definitely the most sobering takeaway for me, how how sadly relevant all of it still was, you know, and you hear a conversation from 50 years ago that could have happened yesterday. It kind of makes you take a look at progress. But I think that's the strange thing about progress because there's no, I mean, I'm sure someone will, you know, Polly, correct me if if you disagree, but there's no denying that we've made progress. It's just the same conversations somehow still apply. I'm not even sure how that works. Right. The the progress that we have, the recent events um, have highlighted to me the marches and the, the spate of killings that we hear about. There have been killings all along with lynch, lynchings, but somehow there's a, a different kind of focus on what is happening to Black people. I I think one way that I look at it is that for the first time, at least to me, it seems like Blacks are taking more control over the stories that are being told and not always just reacting to what is happening. And I think that that's a different way that we are behaving. We seem to be taking the leadership in how the stories are told. And I find that that's that's really exciting for me to hear it when we talk about Nicole Hannah-Jones taking her 1619 project and telling stories about everyday, ordinary Black folk from a point of view of the power that Black folks have, even though it seems like we don't or didn't have much power. At any rate, I'm really excited about where we are right now. I agree with that. I mean, that's a good lens. And I don't know if the narrative is shifting, but I know that our narrative is shifting. And and that conversation from Seoul in 71, maybe that was the beginning of that. Could, it, that 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 era, you know, the early because I grew up in the early seventies, and I think that that was a, a positive thing and a negative thing because becoming vaguely conscious post sixty eight meant, from my perspective, you saw the world getting better and better with no end in sight, and then you know, but but it's cyclical. So I guess I guess the part of the cycle one emerges into the world in affects their expectations. Could you say more about that? Yeah, sure. I thought that uh, Jim Crow, racism, segregation, whatever you want to call it, was a thing of the past. Like, because it seemed from where I sat in 1971, 72, that it was, that progress was inevitable. There had been a struggle. The struggle had had an outcome and doors were opening. My parents went through those doors as fast as they could. And (laughs) my sense was that the brakes on that progress got put on 
in about 80. But before that, I grew up with an almost Obama-like vision of hope before me. And so I, I was just speculating, you know, we talk about depression babies. I'm thinking maybe the time that when you form your worldview, if it is somehow cyclical or a spiral, whatever you want to call it, what the experience is of coming into the world and it's one way, and then inevitably when it becomes another way, what that experience is like. Yeah, I think I, I agree with you. Uh, the 80s for me were a time when I personally was working really hard to ascend the academic ladder, if you will. And uh, it was also a time when a lot of laws were enacted that were really depressing to Black people. I am not a historian, and I'm sorry I can't pinpoint some of those laws exactly, but the 80s seemed in some way really repressive. And so it seemed to me that in spite of the repressive laws, we still were able to uh, make incremental improvements in Black lives. I, I, I sort of was not as attentive to what was going on then, as I said, because I was busy trying to build a career. But I do recall how the 80s was the era of the yuppies and people were building careers and doing this and that. And in my personal life, trying to become an administrator and, and navigating the, <laughs> the dangerous shoals of administration were what I was focused on a lot. But it was also the time, as I recall, a time of issues about drugs and how drugs were being brought into the Black communities and uh, people were suffering because of that seemingly intentional Oh, what's a good word? Uh, reducing what Black people were able to do by introducing drugs into the system. And so there was a lot of crime, a lot of students, people going to jail. It, it was said at that time that one in three Black men will end up in jail. What a terrible statistics. And, and I think that that was perpetuated by the horrible injection of drugs into Black communities. It was not a good time at all. You know, and then 30, 40 years later, those events are confirmed or documented historically. Yes. You know, after after the fact, oh, yes, all of that, every, everything your crazy conspiracy theory cousin said about crack in the hood was true. Right, right. <laughs> right. But it was hard for me to really believe that that was what was going on. How how could a president support that kind of behavior? I, I just was wondering all the time how that could be the rule of the land, if you will. You know, this was this was how things things were, and black people struggled to survive that atmosphere of repression whilst and and at the same time people who were upper mobile like I was and your parents were were caught it seems to me caught in this dichotomy of behavior 
that was expected and behaviors that were in essence put upon people. I am really just beginning to understand all of that history. So I'm not as articulate about it as I should be, but I do understand that the atmosphere for Blatch, while it seemed to be improving, was still targeted with issues that kept people down and back and unable to move forward. Can I just interject that the elements too under what that not only the the drugs introduced into black communities but the mandatory sentencing sort of the ratchet effect of incarcerating and prolonged incarceration along with two other factors I'm thinking of is part of this that you're pulling out from your memory Polly is that the the social safety net was also unraveling with what kind of support for households in the food uh, nutrition programs at, at schools and that kind of thing. And the final one was undermining organized labor and all those things contributing to making it's the true. 80s tough. Yeah. yeah. And for those listeners who've just joined us, my guests are local activist, artist, and retired higher education administrator, Pauline Mary in Orange County and Adam Smyre, attorney and author in Oakland, California. And you are listeners hearing an intergenerational dialogue about what is happening. Yes. So it, it, I, it, I love the fact that it's intergenerational. I'm old enough to be Adam's mother two or three times. And so only once. I think you might be exactly the same age as my mother. <laughs> and so I love that here we are of different generations and still struggling on different levels, though, with the same issues that I grew up with, that my parents struggled with, and that is still going on today, the, the um, struggle. But I still like to go back and say yes. that I think that the ability of African-Americans now to speak out in a more not rich, but a more in a way that is more owned. It's not always in response. But people, Black people are being able, are expressing themselves in ways that Black people would never have thought about in the 50s and the 60s to stand up and speak out in ways that I observe is different from when I was growing up. I am just thrilled with this kind of, if you will, progress that um, I'm seeing now. Of course, built upon what progress has been made in the past, but I love the owning of what we are doing. Now, first, let's take, for example, the favorite topic of hair. When I was growing up, no one would wear their hair my mother would turn over in her grave, may she rest in peace, if she could see my hair today versus when I remember asking her in the 50s, I said, mother, I don't want to straighten my hair anymore. I don't want to do that. And she said, Pauline Estelle, you can't do that. You cannot not straighten your hair. The poor woman would just, she would just shake her head if she could see see what my hair looks like. <laughs> now, and I just am so, I'm so thrilled with that 
ownership that I see demonstrated more and more, not asking permission, but saying, this is the way we want to express ourselves. This is the way we are. And it's okay to to be who and what we are now. Or at least more okay okay than it has been. You know, I mean, we've always been ourselves, but I think you're onto something with the self-expression. We've always had a culture. We've always had a life, but of yes. the ability to express it relatively devoid of consequences. I mean, you know, there's the periodic uh, hair atrocity posted on YouTube, some high school <laughs> or something. But I think what you're saying is that would have been the norm, not the exception yeah. in your lifetime. And that that's progress. That's a thing. You know, people, I, I've always struggled to try to see and identify the progress. And this is helpful because even if the issues are the same, if there is movement on those issues, that's progress. Yes. Yeah. Because yes. when I was, you know, in the 80s or whatever, I, I, people really enjoyed, I grew up with Public Enemy, right? And they loved saying, oh, and a damn thing changed. And so there was a period in the 80s and the 90s when whenever I was alone with an older Black person, I would say, can I ask you something? And yeah, are things better now than, yes. I never even got the whole question out. Uh -huh. you know, it's just, this. it's definitely better. And yeah, I wrote a piece during the pandemic when things were really hot for us in, uh, you know, 21 or so that kind of grappled with the issue around police. And I had just been exposed to a school of thought that some people who are not my friends share, which is that all of this social change since 1960 or so is really just a blip. That if you look at the history of America, how it started, 1619, et cetera, to the present day, it's a fairly straight line with a little bit of an aberration for about 50 years or so, and that can be corrected. That can be smoothed out. But then I thought, you know, there are very few Black people in 1921 that any Black person in 2021 would switch places with. Maybe Jack Johnson. That was the only one I could come up with. And there are literally no Black people in 1821 that any Black person in 1921 would have traded places with, just obviously. Right. So that's progress. Right. You, yeah. The right. long, the long view, the progress is undeniable. Right. Right. There is a, a woman who majored in economics and her name is Marianne Wanamaker. And I would like for people to check out her YouTube presentation in which she talks about 150 years of racial inequality and primarily focused on the economics of blacks and whites. And one of the things that she says is that if you look at a, a black man and his son, the son is almost in the same place as the father was economically. While the economics have improved, the line between white economics and black economics on a scale is still very different. Whites still make more money than Blacks do, even to this day. And so I worry about that economic disparity. It's a thought that I had never occurred to me early on as I was trying to make my way. But the economic disparity that exists between Blacks and whites is still a major problem. And I am just beginning to understand that I had, I remember my son, who's a grown man now, but I remember him asking me, mommy, were we poor 
And I had to say to him, no, we were not poor, but my family was, my family and lots of, let me let me just stop right right I'm going to change the subject when I wrote my book one of the reasons I wrote my book was to describe a strata of African Americans that no one knows very much about this strata of African Americans are well educated they live in beautiful homes they travel they send their children to college they live very comfortable lives in the media, one does not ever hear about that strata of African-Americans. What you hear about are the poor, fat Black woman on welfare with two or three children and having to visit her poor husband in jail. And so that is the picture that is most generally given when you think about African Americans. And I wanted to put a spotlight on families like mine, that there are millions of us who are college graduates, who live in nice homes, who drive nice, whose children do well, and are not in jail. And I wanted people to know about us. Now, my book is very small, and I don't know how many people are going to read it, but the, that, that I got that out there a little bit is something that I really wanted to do. But it relates to my growing awareness of income inequality that exists, why Black people are still, uh, when you hear on the radio, people talk about where Black people are on a scale, it's always fairly low or very low. The net and, worth, the disparities in their net worth, inherited wealth and wealth from their careers and all that. Exactly. Inherited wealth and only, and, and all of that goes back to the policies that were enacted where Black folks couldn't buy property. They couldn't own homes. They couldn't get jobs to support their families. One very poignant thing that I heard one time, some man, some Af black man whose son had done very well and the father was very proud of him, proud of his son. And, uh, but the father said, what I could have been, what I could have been if I had had the opportunities that my son has had. Every time I think about what I could have been, those opportunities that did not exist for this man, it just moves me when I think about him and think about the thousands of other Black men who could not take care of their families in the way that they would like to have. In fact, the talk between Baldwin and Giovanni talked a little bit about mm -hmm. men not being able to take care of their families. So there is that strong undercurrent, that strong basis from which Black folks still have to um, rise. Anyway, I think that both I think both things are true, though, because you were you were just talking about the side of Black life that this society is not interested in knowing about, which is a lot bigger than they think it is. But there is also the disparity, right? So right. maybe some of it's the difference between 
you know, there are definitely disproportionate impacts, whether it's economics or COVID or, you know, I like, I like when people say things about black people having a shorter life expectancy and they just kind of shrug, like there's no reason for it. It's just, oh, well, black people die sooner. Well, anyway, here's more about stress and all the things stress can do to your body. (laughs) Or (laughs) maternal mortality. Yes. There's a, there's a paradox around all progress, isn't there? It's like I, we were talking earlier about getting older and not being a kid anymore and the benefits of not being a kid anymore. And I struggle with every time I learn some profound but glaringly obvious thing about life or people, I have to mourn not having known it all yes. those years before I did. And I just have yeah. to say, well, you, if you didn't know, you didn't know. And now you know. Yeah. And so, yeah, I, I, there's got to be some pain around. And this is easy for me to say, but what I want to say is there's got to be some pain around watching the next generation have opportunities that one themselves didn't have, but the alternative is even worse because I don't know how many, what was it? Uh, Isabel Wilkerson, I think she said it was 13 generations, right? So your grandkids were born being worked to death on a farm. Your your grandparents were born being worked to death on a farm and your grandkids are gonna die being worked to death on a farm. That's not gonna comfort anybody either, right? So progress hurts maybe, but it's still preferable yes yeah are either of you uh, isabel wilkerson fans i am an oh isabel read both her wilkerson books super and she fan. just re- she just has a recent article in i think atlantic i don't remember the topic of it was but she yeah she's uh i'm a big fan of her work she's a national treasure and and her thoughts are running all through this because you you touched on some cast issues earlier in terms of an inability to move generationally the way people in this country supposedly are able to do that that goes deeper than race uh-huh uh-huh yeah. that book really helped me i knew when i started it that i would obtain a lens that would help me see the world and when i was done with the book i had that lens it was just mission accomplished <laughs> so that's the lens there and the lens also that when we we're talking about the project 1619 putting a lens on, these are ordinary stories, such as Polly was referring to, that these things all happen, the power now of telling the stories. And I just want to interject a thought as far as progress that you're both gauging right now, how we could measure this, is there's a lot of resistance to bring out this project and codifying it in education. (laughs) And I'm thinking, though, she's managed to crack open something that's not going to, the genie's not going back in the bottle. People know it's this material is too good. And the resistance will be overtaken, in my estimation, by people that will are continuing to emphatically, enthusiastically embrace the richness, the intellectual honesty of the project and a resistance to the infantilizing of those who want that genie to go back in the bottle. So that's that's a talking piece for you too. I I went to hear her. She was at USC the other day. So I took the light rail because I'm a proponent of, you know, using public transportation and I and I, which is really cool. Anyway, I 
found my way to SC and the line was really long. It was a free Voices and Visions, I think is the series of that. And so there was a really long line. And so I got there really early and, and stood out in the cold reading a New Yorker magazine. But before I went up there, I told some uh, people that I'm working with, I'm going up to see Nicole Hannah-Jones tonight. Do you know who she is? <laughs> yeah, we know who she is. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah, we know who she is. And I was I was taken aback and at the same time amused and angry that mm. that attitude would be <laughs> that attitude would be at the surface. You know, there was no trying to disguise it. There was anger in that response. Yes, we know who she is. And of course she was she was wonderful. She um do you know she was her mother's white? I didn't know that. And uh but you know, if you're what what is it the one drop. One drop. (laughs) And so but she is really articulate, but she's had a, a time to, to respond to challenges. And she said she used to get angry and try and persuade people uh, from about her point, what she has done. And now she says she just doesn't bother. She just she just lets it roll up and she keeps rolling out these projects. And I'm, we're all so grateful for the work that she has done. And she's funny as she can be. She's just really funny. I'm glad that she said that. I think the the power of those stories is evident, if nothing else, in the resistance they're encountering. I mean, it's considerable resistance. And if these things were nothing, they wouldn't merit that. And I'm really glad to hear that she's taking care of herself that way, though, because I mean, something we had talked about earlier offline was the importance of um, pacing oneself. Uh-huh. Right, we're talking about centuries here. We're talking about generations. We have to take care of ourselves, and maybe that's actually part of the progress. Maybe that's part of the luxury. I mean, you, Paulie, were talking yourself about being so immersed in your own personal progress that you don't have this encyclopedic historical take on the era that you were actually moving through, affecting change in. Right? That's right. I think that's <laughs> probably normal. Is it? You uh-huh. you lived it, so you don't have that arm's length experience of it. But sometimes I think we even need to just turn inward for a while. I certainly have turned somewhat inward compared to, you know, when I was promoting either of my books, when I was part of dialogues, most of these, not this dialogue, but most of what gets passed off as a dialogue in our world today is quite toxic. And I I found it's better to take breaks in between Uh (laughs) because you know it's definitely going to get better but how much worse is it going to get before it gets better and i think we have to really pace ourselves yes so for those of you who've just joined us my guests are local activist and artist and retired higher administrator pauline mary in garden grove orange county and adam smyre attorney and author in oakland california and this is a dialogue on well, just I'm just going to run with what Adam's saying. It's a it's gauging progress because so many of the topics presented in the Seoul 1971 dialogue between Nikki Giovanni and James Baldwin that about 85 to 90 percent of that could be broadcast today and 
we would not know that it was a 52-year-old conversation. So we were talking a little bit about economic disparities. And I don't know if you wanted to talk gauging progress in education. That's partly 1619, but there's education in terms of how other kinds of curriculum, other kinds of insulating resources that aren't available to all communities. We're Things were getting better, but there's more insulation. There's with COVID, the assets that we were talking about that are accumulated and passed on generation to generation, a lot of displacement occurred in the pandemic. And those assets may not actually be available after all to a lot of households of color. So that progress is a pretty bumpy line. Well, at best. I have a an anecdote that I'd like to share that kind of covers all of what you just mentioned. A friend of mine, um, black woman, which reminds me of something. You know, why are we still calling out black and white? Why are we still doing that? You know, uh, anyway, because it's relevant. No, no, no. Let's go there. Oh, wait, okay. wait, wait. Tell so, your story, but we're gonna we're gonna come back to that. Okay, so so let me tell you this this story. So, so my friend was driving down the Harbor Freeway, going toward downtown LA from Orange County, and so my friend is black, and she was with this white woman who was. They were in the car together, and the white woman's daughter was in the back seat. And as she drove from Orange County, she could see kind of a difference in the housing and the attributes of communities didn't were not quite the same as they are in Orange County. And so she asked her mother, she said, Mommy, why are these people living in these kinds of conditions? And the mother said, well, just poor decisions. They've made Ooh. poor decisions. And my black friend said, wait, wait a minute. It's not about just about decisions. It's not about, do you under, anyway, she went on to talk about poor schooling and the inability to get jobs and the poor health. And she just went through a litany of things that were not just decisions. These were conditions that people were living in. And so she challenged this woman and say, no, it's not. I think I'm going to be poor today, or I think I'm not going to go out and look for a job, or I think I'm not going to go to the doctor because I don't have the money to pay. Those are not just poor decisions. Those are circumstances that people live in. So I was very, I, I like that story. It's not people who who don't have the opportunity to go to the doctor to get go to get go to good schools to do anything go to Saks Fifth Avenue or whatever it's not just because they made a poor decision people are not looking at the overall circumstances that lead people or force people to live in conditions that they would not choose if they what if they could what year was this that this happened this was just yesterday this was was, you know oh it's just poor decisions no so anyways i just wanted to i I mean 
I'm glad your friend was there to intervene in the moment. But yes. if that's the message that child is getting from her mother, it's going to get in. Exactly. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Poor decisions. And my friend jumped in and said, wait, wait. It's not just a matter of poor decisions. And as I said, she listed this litany of reasons why people can't do what they would like to do. And even if you put aside the extremes, even if, you know, you, you put aside you know, I'm thinking Marvin Gaye's Mercy, Mercy Me, right? Yes. Uh -huh. if, you, if you put aside how, how stacked the deck is at the extremes, even in the middle, even if you're talking about average people and only moderate marginalization, I look back at my life and I look at random opportunities and I look at luck and I look at bad breaks and even a thumb on the scale lightly would make a tremendous difference in a person's life over the course of their entire lifetime. You know what haunts me these days? The theme song to All in the Family. Because I grew up watching All in the Family. Uh -huh. And I took it all at face value. I took it for granted. But that song, guys like us, we had it made. Those uh -huh. were the days. I'm living through another research. I mean, that's, that's Make America Great Again. Yeah. Guys like them, to be candid, were mediocre. But depending on your lot in life, mediocrity can get you a boat in your driveway or it can get you life in prison. And, yeah. You know, those those are sometimes the stakes. Yeah. <laughs> so Adam, you wanted to take up the ever large distinction that Polly says, maybe we don't need to continue using. Well, I mean, I, I kind of feel like you answered, you answered your own question with the story that that you told on the, the relevance, you know, of the relevance of race, because because without it, that mother's answer has more traction, you know, poor decisions. It's like I, I, when, when you said that I was imagining on the news, you know, of, uh, the newscaster saying hey, a person was uh, strangled to death in the middle of the street today by police officers in front of everybody. And nothing happened. And you would already still know the identity. You you would know the demographics involved. And so to omit them seems not that different from the resistance our friend uh, Dr. Smith is getting on 1619 Project. It, it's I, I'll be happy to go beyond race once we're beyond race. But until then, it's um it smacks of erasure to me. And, uh, oh wait, wait! Say that again. Say that. Say that again. What do you say? Well, just the idea of why why do we identify people as as black or white in a story? Maybe maybe we don't always, right? You know, a guy walks into a bar. That's that's not necessarily going to need that adjective. In fact, I guess I would say a joke that begins a guy walks into a bar is a very different joke from a a joke that begins a black guy walks into a bar. That said, sometimes it's relevant. That's all because in the world it's relevant. So that was my answer to why why you would mention that is because it was highly relevant. That's all. Uh -huh. Well, you know, I was thinking in preparing for this wonderful talk with you, I was wondering myself why we still identify people as racially. Because sometimes it doesn't advance the story at all. And so yesterday, my wonderful husband 
called me and he's traveling back east someplace. And he said to me, my husband is white. And he said, and I was in the airport and this lovely black woman helped me. And I thought to myself, why did he need to say that she was black? It didn't make any difference in what she did for him. She got him a bottle of water, let's say. And I wonder why we feel the need to do that. Oh, she's a lovely black girl. The The new president is black or it was a black, you know. What, no, I get we... that. I get that. Sometimes it's not relevant. So when it gets worked in, it does raise the question why. I agree with that. I'm just saying if we were to, let's say the next president passed a ban on identifying the race of any person, I don't feel like that would benefit us because you'd have a lot of news stories about a person having been subjected to a horrible injustice. <laughs> I don't know why I think that's funny. <laughs> uh -huh. Okay. So, 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 so you're saying sometimes it does advance the story. Sometimes it is important to know, given the political, social conditions under which we are living, that helps us to understand the story more. The, the context in which whatever the personal interaction is, yeah. is happening. Yeah. I mean, your story in the car would be a different story if right. it had been a Black child and her mother, her Black mother, and a white person intervening. That's, okay. a, that's somehow a different story. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Sigh. Yes. <laughs> Sigh. Huh. But I, I want to know if you could talk about for whom you're writing your work in the broader topic of what we're talking about, oh, the yes. arc of progress. Well, when I started, it's autobiographical and uh, it covers my life from kindergarten through my graduation from high school. And when I wrote it, my picture was that it would be for young girls through high school. And I also had the notion that since it's historical in some aspects of it, I thought that it would be a good book for the homeschool market. So I put questions at the end of each chapter but to my knowledge, no child has read the book yet. It has only been adults who have read the book. And they have answered the questions in the back of the book and found that they really enjoyed answering those questions. One question was, what do you want to be when you grow up or something like that? And one woman took the time to go on YouTube to check out, or her husband told her, go on YouTube and check out and see if you really do want to finished furniture. And after looking at a couple of YouTubes, she decided she didn't want to do that. But the real point is that she took the time and is working her way through the book and answering the questions at the end uh, of each chapter. So my book is, my head was for children, but it's actually anybody can read it and I think enjoy it. Well, that's fascinating. Yes, Adam. As we discussed offline, my initial audience for my first book, Knucklehead, was nobody. <laughs> 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 uh, 
what it has become, my target audience for that novel is now people who have been through some things. The protagonist in Knucklehead, Marcus Hayes, has a, a bumpy life in ways that perhaps one might not expect, especially from a title like Knucklehead. But as I get older and I live more and meet more people, I'm starting to divide them into people who have been through something and people who have not. And I think that might almost be the most profound division between people because when you've been through something, you know something about the world. And I find more often than not, it brings out a tremendous empathy because when you've seen yourself in your life in ways you never envisioned or hoped or planned, you know it can happen to you. Most people then know that it can happen to someone else. My wife and I are re-watching Breaking Bad right now, and I keep thinking to myself, this show is making me feel how I wanted people to feel when they read my book. Because you're watching someone whose choices are all bad. And he's not the best at making choices, but you can't deny that the ones he has to choose from all stink. And just to watch that struggle and to watch somebody push back against forces so much larger than him that other people would just lay down and die, you have to feel something. And there's, a, there's something about that show that I now understand I was trying to put in the book that wakes up that thing in us that makes us fight for ourselves. And sometimes the way we do it is ugly and wrong. Sometimes we do it badly. But that spark that makes you fight for yourself is an amazing thing. Wow, that's very nice. Thank you. Thank you. And the other, uh, the audience, you can keep that to yourself as a totally different group. <laughs> yeah, that one, that one backfired a little bit because, uh, you know, again, the, the title is you can keep that to yourself, a comprehensive list of what not to say to black people for well-intentioned people of pallor. Now, so on its face, it purports to be a guidebook for well-intentioned white people. And that seems to be how it's been largely received. My fantasy for this book, uh, I wish you could see it. It's the cutest little book in the world. Akashic did such a great job. It's a little tiny hardcover. And I envisioned this book in the cubicle of every Black person working in an office in America. <laughs> Even though it's the tone and the, the audience is, you know, here are, uh, you know, from A to Z, a bunch of things that you love to say to us. and how we hear them. <laughs> the book started off as a rant, really, obviously. Uh -huh. And for a while, I, I imagined it as a children's book, interestingly, uh -huh. Uh -huh. As, a, as a fake children's book. I mean, it, it's a parody, it's satire. But as I mentioned, I think uh, offline earlier, satire is dead. And so best I can tell, most of the people who are buying this book are truly the people who need it. So I'm doing good, that I did not intend to do because I have a steady stream of well-intentioned people of pallor telling me that they read this book and they learned something. And I did not expect that. It actually gives me hope because I did not realize that people were interested in learning anything. Oh, so it's bringing the echo chamber and it's introverting it outward. And I'm one of those people, that audience that you're talking about. That's, that's that. beautiful. And, and I'm sharing it all over the divides, as it were. That's well, great. I want to conclude with 
another expansive line of thinking. I want to know how you two are doing as we wind up here. And in the back of my mind is there's trauma we're swimming around in, there's joy, and there is thriving amidst all of that. And I want to know if you have a way to impart a lesson about how you thrive, how you are navigating the trauma. Because I, I bring up trauma because I think another dimension of trauma is anticipating the next trauma perpetrated on anybody. Uh -huh. so it's everywhere. So that's a mouthful, but that's the last sort of inquiry I have for you to riff off with each other about. You know, like I mentioned earlier, I think we need to pace ourselves. We just, we need to be mindful of what we take in. I don't think all of what's out there in the world is for us. And I'm going to bring down the crowd with a very heavy story. I watched a beheading video mm. by Al-Qaeda. I guess it was Al-Qaeda. This was back in, I believe it was 2002. I believe the poor man was Daniel Pearl. Oh, and Daniel Pearl, yeah. Because it was 2002 and all of that was happening. At the time, I viewed it as my civic duty as an American, as a citizen of a country that was starting two, three wars, to take it all in and inform myself and understand if what was about to happen happened, what we were supposedly fighting. So one day after work, I sat down at the computer and I found the video and I watched it from start to finish. And when it was over, I remember sitting alone in my house and I said out loud, I am terrorized. It worked. I now understand that Al-Qaeda probably wanted me to watch that video more than anyone else because this is what they do. Fast forward to now, I've never watched George Floyd's lynching. I've never watched that. I have no obligation to watch it. It is not for me. It is terrorism. And yeah, I don't owe it to society or the race or anyone to traumatize myself. It's kind of like you were saying earlier, Paulie, in the 80s, you were busy doing it. You weren't really worried about Joe Biden passing the crime bill because you were making moves. And right. I think that we need to be mindful of our own rhythms. I think it is important sometimes to take it in and to participate and to fight, but the struggle takes many forms and many times just getting from A to B is the struggle. Ah, oh, yes. So, Claudia. So Polly, do you wanna, do you wanna directly respond to what is your own personal decision or your own policy you're guided by, do you feel obligated to have to witness something? Or do you feel like you, you can look away? Do you give your permission to look away? So that's something I've been really wanting to know. And I'm, I appreciate Adam bringing up that scenario. And I'd like to have you respond. What's your own personal approach to that kind of traumatizing venture I, out there? I close my eyes. I don't want to look. I don't feel like there's uh, anything that I, I can, I can understand, I can hear it, I can read about it, and, uh, but I don't feel obliged to look at anything visually. When, when he mentioned Pearl, I think of Pearl's parents, mm -hmm. and I think 
did they look? Could they look? And no, I I'm chicken in that regard. I I don't I don't look and um, never will. Uh, so, what else was your question, though? It seemed like no, were... that's no, that's what I wanted to find out. And I think chicken is a hard judgment on you if it's self care. No, if it's, you're yeah, protecting it's not, yourself, it's not yes. chicken, and it's not. It it doesn't serve the same purpose for you. As I'm not saying these videos should not be shown. I'm saying that they are best shown to people who want to believe that these things don't happen. Uh -huh. I don't. I think that there are side effects. When uh -huh. viewed by people to whom it could happen. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's an interesting question, though, Claudia, that you raise. Uh, I had never even considered. I remember seeing um, an art exhibit. I go to a lot, a lot of art stuff, and there was a show up at LACMA, I think. Anyway, it showed uh, there was a room that showed horrors from the 20-year war that we were just got out of, thanks to Biden. And I don't understand the kickback on why he's criticized for that, but that's a whole nother story. So in the picture, was it was a view of a chaotic situation in a street, perhaps in Iraq. And what I recall to this day, to this moment, is this severed head lying on a pavement nobody his body was nowhere to be seen just this severed head i didn't need to see that i didn't need to see that that was terrorism yeah yes absolutely terrorism. absolutely so my bachelor's is in nursing so i saw enough and i worked in the or till i got out of nursing thank god so i've had personal views of bodies in all kinds of conditions and don't need to do that. Personally. Understandable. Nothing remotely chicken about that. I, I understand that something horrible has happened to a younger black person fairly recently and, and uh I'm I'm not interested. And apparently there's video and I'm it's so Tyree it Nichols for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just it's not for me. Not for someone who leaves his house each day wondering if it will happen. Yes. And that's what I'm talking about. Trauma is also anticipating that the trauma shoot, it could drop yes. another. It's in the future. Yes. Well, a parting lesson on thriving. That's this is going to be thriving amidst all this that I was setting up in this last question. But just to close your parting thinking about that. And that's the way to push that progress arc hard upward to keep the theme. I would have to say, to me, what being Black is about is about knowing who you are in the face of everything around you telling you otherwise. And similarly, you know, and I just keep thinking about, Paula, you talking about your experience in the 80s, there is a disconnect between our progress and the progress of the larger world. And yes, sometimes it works against us. Sometimes it's a negative disconnect where there are periods of prosperity, maybe like the 50s, I'm not sure, that rose all boats except some. But there are also times we have our own rhythm. We're on our own path. And I guess I want to say, if any Black people happen to be listening, as weird and difficult as these times are, if you're doing well, go with it. Be glad. 
sometimes it's not going to go well for you and it's while it's going well for other people. So if it's going well for you now, while it's not going well for other people, make the most of that because we're not completely of this world. We have a whole other thing going on and navigate that and focus on that. That's how I thrive. Okay. I like that. About thriving, I am, I think that if I reflect on my life, I have been extraordinarily blessed. And my life has been, except for, you know, one or two interesting disappointments, it hasn't been bad, you know, it's been okay. And it continues to be in that positive vein. I think it's partly because how I hold myself in the world, I mean, physically hold myself. I, I mentioned that I took the light rail down to SC by myself. And my grandson said, Polly, you can't be traveling at nighttime by yourself, you know. And But I've been fortunate to be educated and to do some interesting things. And so I'm I'm just going to keep doing what I do. <laughs> And and see see what what comes along and enjoy it. That's about all I can can. I'm I'm so blessed, and I'm just gonna keep on doing what it is I've been doing all these these. Oh my God, I'll be 86 years old for goodness sakes in a couple of days. Anyway, but what a feat! Wow, <laughs> that sounds like a solid plan to me, Polly. Solid plan. Well, I want to thank you both. There is much more to share and to parse with you. And I'm so grateful to you for all that you've given us today. Some zones I didn't quite know we'd enter into, but I knew there were going to be some really good zones ahead when you signed on to this project. Thank you so much for your time, Polly and Adam. Thank you, Claudia. Thank you 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 so much. much. My guests were local activist artist and retired higher ed administrator Pauline Mary in Garden Grove and Adam Smyer, attorney and author in Oakland, California. There's a bonus segment on askaleader.com. Next week, we'll hear from Kate Abate. She's a gerontologist. Got some insight about some elder abuse right under our very noses. Talk with you next week. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Mm-hmm.